0: Complainant wished to report her son a missing person. The subject, Richard Atwood, was last seen by family and friends on the 10th of August, 1983, and not heard from since. The complainant has contacted all family members and known friends of her son with none reporting contact with him since the 10th. The undersigned officer has had several reports of this subject being involved in the sale of narcotics. Possibility exists that such may be related to his disappearance. The subject's vehicle is also missing to date.
1: I built that Trans Am for him. He paid for all the parts, but I built the car for him, you know?
0: Did you really? I didn't know that.
1: yeah. yeah. What we did is he bought a transvan, and he was all excited about it. He was out high riding, and then the wrist pin went out of it. So we tore it all apart, put new pistons, forged pistons in it, and different rods in the motor. And then we had to have supporters and polish. And put a cam, put a cam in it, and then put new intake headers, tires, shocks, all the way around it. You know, I did it under a shade tree at my house. Aww. He bought the Trans Am, and, and then uh, he just took me down to Remus Auto Parts and said, just give him whatever he wants. And I told him exactly what I wanted, and and he bought all the stuff, and I built that car for him. Well, I, I know this. this is a guarantee. I can stake my life on it. That Rick would never let nobody drive that car but
0: him. No, I totally agree, and that's why... If he
1: was dead and he stole the car, that's the only reason he'd be driving that car. That's right. The only reason. I never drove that car built that car. He was funny about his personal shit. He always was. That was his baby, that was his pride and joy.
0: This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. What I want to understand is the dynamic if he was if he if if in fact somehow he went missing because of a uh, drug deal, was he competition to
1: Ricky Rick was a little bit lower on the totem pole than was about the biggest one in the, in White Cloud and Legal area.
0: Did they all get their drugs from the same place?
1: Yeah. Ricky yeah, Ricky did. My stuff came from uh, Lansing. Like my my stuff came from the Sicilians.
0: <laughs> ah, okay. Now, so did it come to him, or did he have to go out of town to get it? As
1: far as I can remember, they'd go out of town together, and Ricky and a couple other guys.
0: So they would all go together, um, and pick the stuff up, and then they all would sell separately within the same town, or did they did they sell to surrounding towns? How did that work?
1: They they I'm sure they sold to like Groman Baldwin.
0: Okay, and was it large quantities that they what they went and picked up? I mean, significant quantities
1: yeah a couple weeks worth
0: okay, so they would go together and what what is it possible that Grand Rapids is one of the places where they would have picked stuff up?
1: yeah, they, entirely possible they could have met in g r with people from further south.
0: This case began as a missing persons case, after Rick's mother had asked around to family and friends and nobody knew where he was. And as often happens with cases where adults go missing, there isn't an immediate sense of urgency until such time as it appears that a crime has occurred. I will give credit here, though, to Detective Richard Miller, who you might remember from Season 1 on the Waldron case, because I believe he had a sense that something might be amiss right off the bat. While Detective Miller started contacting Rick's friends right away, it wasn't until his car was found in October that the investigation heated up. That's when they found evidence in the car that suggested foul play might be involved. First were the circumstances under which the car came to be in the possession of the East Leonard service station. According to the report, an employee had received a wrecker request over the phone from a subject that was identified as being an African-American male in the 20-year age range. The request was for the service station to get his car running and that he would stop in and pick it up later. He specifically requested a flatbed trailer, rather than having the vehicle towed. It was later learned that the car had run out of gas, but had no mechanical defects, and it was in running order. But it was muddy inside and out, although that mud had dried by then. When I learned that it was out of gas, I had some questions, like, how did a car with no gas end up in a Grand Rapids hotel parking lot? Did the killer drive it there and coast in on fumes? Or was it towed there? And once there, how was the killer getting around town? Because you will learn he was not done for the night. If Rick was killed somewhere in that car, and that somewhere was not the hotel parking lot, which I'm fairly certain it was not, then we have to assume that the killer arranged for that car to be put in that parking lot, either by himself or someone else, after he disposed of the body. Because obviously when they found the car, Rick was not in the trunk. So this would have been some time after he was murdered, seen in the trunk of his car dead, in white cloud, disposed of, and then brought back to Grand Rapids. I'm assuming this was later in the evening. All of this leads me to believe that the killer was not alone while he was running around town. He needed wheels. So there's someone right there who's got first-hand information. An inventory of the car includes fishing equipment in the trunk, along with items associated with cleaning and fixing cars. Perhaps Rick may have at least thought he might do some fishing on that day. According to a close friend, he didn't generally fish in the Grand Rapids area. So it's more likely than not that he was headed back to Nuego County after he handled his business in Grand Rapids or somewhere in between. For some reason, he had taken fishing equipment um, with to go him. Fishing in the I'm sorry, say that again? He probably, he
1: goes, we used to go fishing and drive up to the culverts and catch trout out of the culverts. At um, where, was like on the road, 40th Street, all up and down the Bigelow Creek and all that. Used to go fishing all the time, trout fishing.
0: And that's in, um, in White Cloud?
1: Yeah, yep.
0: Well, what about in Grand Rapids? Was there anywhere he fished over there?
1: I don't think so. I don't think he fished the Grand River enough nothing. he's more of a trout stream.
0: Okay. Then the, there ain't no
1: trout really there, you know. He was a trout
0: fisherman. The thing that stood out to me the most from the trunk was the broken wooden shovel handle, and I assume that stood out to police as well. There was also some marijuana paraphernalia found inside the car, including a plastic ashtray and seed tray. They collected everything from plastic cups to matchbooks and straw wrappers, even cigarette butts from the interior, but most significantly, human blood was located under the driver's seat, on the right side of the driver's seat and console area, and on the left rear passenger area of the floor. Blood was also located in the trunk. Now, once you find blood in a trunk and determine that it is human blood, it's safe to say you are probably looking at more than a missing person's case. This blood, by the way, was found at a time when they couldn't match it by DNA to an individual, only by blood type. It would, much later, be found to be the blood of Rick Atwood. But in 1983, there wasn't that certainty. Still, police appeared to be fairly certain that they were looking at a criminal activity that likely ended in foul play, where Rick was concerned. They came to that conclusion simply by coupling the fact that Rick was missing, they now had blood, and someone called for the wrecker to pick up the car at the Gateway Motel and that someone was decidedly not Rick Atwood. So who was driving Rick's car, and why? The brown two door Pontiac Trans Am was retrieved from the parking lot of the Gateway Motel, so that's where the detective began the next part of his investigation. After interviewing the manager and staff of the motel, none of whom had seen anyone who looked like Rick Atwood on August 10th or 11th, they were then able to obtain room registration information. A search of the registration cards for people who had checked in in and around this time revealed that only one subject, had written Trans Am under Make of Car on the registration card, which was dated August 10th, the day Rick went missing. If you're going to kill someone, steal his car and dump it, and then stay in that same motel where you dumped it, you probably shouldn't write that car down on the registration ticket. That's not very bright. The registration card said there were two people in the party, and the $24.45 room charge was paid for in cash sometime in the evening hours of August 10th, though no specific time is given. A series of interviews were done between the time the car was found and when telephone records from the motel in question could be obtained, and these interviews shed further light on possible persons of interest. They learned that the subject who'd rented the room in question had given a Cleveland, Ohio address, and the telephone log sheet from the room revealed two outgoing calls built to the room. Both occurred on the morning of August 11th, the day after Rick was last seen. And there's some more breadcrumbs that this brain trust is leaving because both calls would be traced back to people associated with him. Rick's photo was shown around to motel staff, and nobody recalled seeing him. So it became clear to the detective that whoever had registered in the evening hours of August 10th and written Trans Am on the card, it wasn't Rick. Lo and behold, one of the numbers that were called from the motel was to the home of the father of the named suspect at 8.52 a.m. That call lasted about 10 minutes, and I suspect that was a pretty interesting call. The other call was to an address associated with the girlfriend of the named suspect, who police believe may have been in the room that night with him. That call occurred just after 9 a.m. When the named suspect was questioned about being in the car with Rick that day, the detective noted that he was, quote, vague and seemingly evasive. The note went further to say, couple this with the information concerning the recovery of the Atwood vehicle, and this subject must be considered a suspect. So now we have a link, even though the name on the registration card was not that of the named suspect. Both long-distance calls from that motel room can be linked to him. That gave police enough to get a warrant for the phone records at the residence of his father, and they start checking into his background, and they learn that he worked for the U.S. Forestry Service. The Forestry Service was contacted, and it was learned that the named suspect's father managed property for the Michigan Creek Reserve in Broman, Michigan, about 800 acres in Merrill Township. 800 acres that would be a perfect place to dispose of a body. This property would later be the subject of multiple searches for the body of Rick Atwood, all to no avail. Many witnesses came forward saying that they had heard directly from the named suspect that's where he disposed of Rick. Whether that was an effort on his part to throw police off track, or they just haven't been able to effectively search that large of an area, is still unknown. What I do know is that they need credible information of a specific location on a property, certainly one that large, before they can embark on an effective search. It appears that they have searched that 800 acres at least five times. However, one place that I have seen no paperwork to suggest that they have searched is his father's property, where I have been told by multiple people that Rick's body was disposed of. There were witnesses in the report who also believed this is where Rick was buried. When you hear the next part of the story, I think you'll understand why. But first, consider that Rick was never seen alive after 4 p.m. or so, and that he was in Grand Rapids. Now, he may have come back to the White Cloud area later that evening, and nobody saw him. Or he may have run into the named suspect in Grand Rapids, and that's where he was killed or it could have happened somewhere in between Grand Rapids and White Cloud. It's possible that Rick and the named suspect had even set up a meeting in Grand Rapids, and there is some evidence to suggest that they may have been working on a drug deal together at some point. It does appear that there's a possibility that the named suspect could also have been in the area of Riverside Park at the time that Rick was that day, around 4 o'clock. In December of 1983, Four months after Rick Atwood went missing, Detective Miller interviewed a woman who had been the girlfriend of the named suspect at the time Rick went missing. They had lived together. The report notes that she was believed to be one of the subjects that had stayed in the Gateway Motel on August 10, 1983. It reveals that one of the calls made from the room was to an address in white cloud associated with her, one where her mother lived this woman denied knowing Rick Atwood or ever meeting him or ever having been in his vehicle. She did remember being told that the Brown Trans Am belonged to him and that Rick had spent $2,000 on the engine of the car. This conversation occurred when Rick passed her and the unnamed suspect in a car while they were driving around one day. It is interesting. What it shows is that her boyfriend, the murder suspect, not only knew or thought he knew how much Rick had put into his car engine, but for some reason felt compelled to comment about it in casual conversation to his girlfriend. She admitted to having been the girlfriend of the named suspect, but she said that they had broken up since, and he moved to Cincinnati, Ohio with his mother. She denied ever being in a motel in Grand Rapids with the named suspect. When pressed, she did recall once being picked up in Grand Rapids by the named suspect, her mother and her mother's friend, at the end of July in 1983, when she'd taken a bus from Detroit to Grand Rapids. She said they had picked her up and brought her to White Cloud. But she continued to deny knowing anything about Rick's disappearance. As a result of this interview, the detective determined that three valid misdemeanor warrants existed for her, from the Detroit City Police Department. So she was arrested and lodged in the Newego County Jail. While being fingerprinted later that day, she suddenly remembered that she had been to Grand Rapids on another occasion with the named suspect. This, she said, was during the month of August, and she recalled going fishing with the named suspect and her mother. The detective notes that her description of a park in the city next to a lake and river matched that of Riverside Park the same park that Rick was last seen around 4 p.m. the day he went missing. When asked about that occasion, she claimed to have only caught one catfish, and then she alleged that she, the named suspect, and two other people all returned to White Cloud. She said they didn't see Rick, although if she denies even knowing him, I'm not sure how she would even know he was there. Also, we have no way of knowing if, while they were there, the named suspect ran into Rick before he left. The woman was bonded out of the Nuego County Jail later that same day by the father of the named suspect. The detective tried to interview the brother of the named suspect around this time, but he would not talk without his father present. He was a minor at the time. Later, the detective contacted the father, who said he had spoken to his younger son and that he recalled getting a phone call from the named suspect one morning in August prior to football season. The brother of the named suspect played high school football in White Cloud. He said that his older son had asked his younger son to call his girlfriend's mother's house and have them come pick him up from Grand Rapids. According to phone records, that call was made the day after Rick went missing. At that point, the father told the detective not to contact his younger son again without contacting him first. Neither the father or the brother of the named suspect appear to have ever given a meaningful interview to police, even to this day. That quick phone conversation with the father did send the detective back to the mother of the girlfriend of our named suspect and the man she lived with. Detective Miller started out the interview by asking if they ever picked the named suspect up in Grand Rapids, but before they answered, he made sure to tell them that he was asking in relation to the murder of Rick Atwood. They both said that they didn't realize this was about a murder case. Detective Miller had asked the man about this before, and he had given a different answer. This time they alleged that they had only picked the named suspect up in Grand Rapids once in the summer of 1983, and it was in the afternoon hours at the Greyhound bus station. But they both continued to maintain that the woman's daughter had not been with him at the time. The woman and her friend both say that they dropped the named suspect off at her daughter's home, where they lived together at the time. This woman was, by her own admission, the girlfriend of the named suspect at the time, and over the years he told multiple people that he had been at the motel with a former girlfriend. I can only imagine what she saw. Muddy, bloody clothing. The named suspect frantically making calls to arrange for help getting out of town? Was she there when he made the call to the wrecker service to have the Trans Am picked up? Or did that happen later? That call he used an alias. I mean, that would stand out, wouldn't it? If your boyfriend arranged for the pickup of a car you knew wasn't his, using an assumed name? I think I might remember that. Or did he make that call from the Greyhound station? It occurred sometime that afternoon around 2 or 2.30, but they don't show up on the call logs in the motel. Checkout is usually sometime in the afternoon, so maybe he stayed there as long as he could, and then he walked to the Greyhound station from the motel. Or he got a ride, leaving the Trans Am to sit there in the parking lot until someone noticed. It's also possible that he left the hotel and called to have someone pick him up, or maybe he went to their house and called the wrecker from elsewhere then had someone drop him off at the bus station. If that's the case, there is at least one more person with first-hand information, in addition to the girlfriend. Or the girlfriend's lying and she drove him to the bus station before getting the hell out of Grand Rapids. And it seems like it would have been smarter to just abandon the car and not call a wrecker service. It probably would have sat out there for a few days or even a week or so. I assume he had a reason for calling the wrecker to pick it up because... The named suspect is criminally sophisticated. He had used an alias to register at the motel. Not to mention the fact that he has managed to hide a body so well it has never been found, and we are over three decades later. I hear that he's even bragged to people about how police think they know something but they'll never find him because he's on private property, an area where they can't search. The story that follows about the night Rick was killed is shocking by itself, but when you consider how much these people were talking for these many details to have come out from so many different sources, it's doubly shocking. The named suspect, his father, and his brother all made repeated statements over the years to people not only about Rick being dead, but about their individual culpabilities, which included the named suspect. Admitting to multiple people that he had committed the murder. And it included his brother admitting to seeing the body. And his father allegedly making comments like, Pigs eat everything but teeth. The day I made a post about my interest in covering this case, before I had even received the FOIA request, my inbox was pummeled with comments two of which were individuals who both mentioned a property on Baseline Road in White Cloud. Both also mentioned that they believed pigs had been on the property. And they both also mentioned where on the property that they heard the body could have been buried. One even mentioned that the body was near a lake that had been excavated on that property, and that it butted up against federal land, which was an area sometimes hunted by locals. A third person who contacted me had heard through the grapevine that the body was buried there. Baseline, they all told me. It's on the Baseline property. Now Rick may or may not be on that property on Baseline because there are a few other places I'd check into as well, but that's three people who mentioned the same property on the first day I was beginning my research. Not a single person mentioned the other property, the one that has been repeatedly searched, the one on 800 acres in Broman. Later, I would hear about the property of a friend of the named suspect, whose family lived out near that Broman property, where the named suspect was seen with a white male that day, looking around his garage, possibly for a shovel. I wasn't sure what to make of all this, Was he buried or fed to pigs? And where was he? Was he on the baseline property, or was he put somewhere on that vast expanse of land in Broman that no law enforcement body in the country would have enough resources to search, effectively enough to say with any level of certainty, that Rick was or wasn't there, unless an actual body was found. So here is the basic story of what happened. The named suspect pulled into his father's yard driving Rick Atwood's Brown Trans Am on August 10th, 1983. His brother came outside and asked why he was driving Rick's car and the suspect said, I killed Rick. He says he needs to get rid of the body and he goes into the garage for a shovel. I have to say that what police reports lack that someone like me who has written narrative fiction is familiar with are the little things that all of us want to know. Like what kind of expression is on his face? If his brow is dappled with sweat? If he's manic or subdued? If he looks scared or if he's covering that with anger? Is he yelling or is he dangerously quiet? Does he appear to understand the gravity of what's happening? Were his eyes on the ground as he retrieved the shovel from the garage, or was he scattered and mumbling and pacing back and forth, trying to figure out what to do? Those details, I'm afraid, may never be told because the people who were present at the time probably won't talk. And I'm not sure they even have it in them to do the right thing. Which is a shame because I suspect that if the brother contacted police, and told them that he'd spill everything he knew if they gave him immunity for the role that he may have played, they might just oblige. But for some people, hiding the secrets of those whose blood they share trumps the moral integrity that it would take to do the right thing. I imagine that his brother was in shock when he told him he killed Rick but I suspect that shock paled in comparison to the bowel loosening moment when that trunk was popped and he saw Rick's body covered in blood. Imagine your brother, your flesh and blood, just killed someone and brought the dead person's body in the trunk of his own car into your yard. I don't mean to be crass, but even I as a young girl had heard the phrase don't shit where you eat what kind of person after killing someone instinctively thinks it's going to be safe taking the dead body to their father's house I would submit that's a person who believes his family is going to cover for him and it looks like that's exactly what they did Stay tuned.